It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios. Welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. You and you still like me or you or you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. <laughs> I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth in America wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. Tuesday, April 29th. The streets of Saigon usually jammed with traffic at the morning rush hour, are quiet. The attack by communist aircraft at Saigon's Tansunut Airport the day before has prompted a 24-hour curfew. And the only people on the streets are ambulance drivers and policemen. With communist forces only a few miles from the center of Saigon, the order to evacuate American nationals is given. Americans and citizens of third countries who have been guaranteed space on the airlift gather at assembly points for the bus ride to Tansunut Airport. But the buses have to be abandoned when helicopters at Tansunut come under fire from both communist and South Vietnamese troops. Heavy shelling at the airport destroys planes on the ground and American Marines are killed by rocket fire. Journalists filming the action from the roof of their hotel see a South Vietnamese helicopter shot down near the grounds of the presidential palace. At least 10 people die in the crash. The American ambassador Graham Martin took personal control of the evacuation. Marines use smoke to signal helicopters they should land on the lawn behind the embassy walls where they would be protected from ground fire. For the frightened civilians, the first few hundred feet were the most dangerous. After that, they were out of range of rifle and pistol fire. The hardest part was the waiting. Many people said it was unnerving to be waiting for a ride to safety and to be hearing fighting all around you. That's a report from the Canadian Broadcasting Company, and that's about the uh, fall of Saigon, Vietnam, which happened 40 Seven years ago, April 29th and 30th of 1975, I can tell you that that soundbite has taken our guest, our current guest, uh, back in time because he was there on that day. He was working as a foreign correspondent for the Chicago Tribune. He was their uh, Far East correspondent. He worked in Southeast Asia, lived in Japan. Uh, He was there for the fall of South Vietnam, Cambodia. He was at the Tiananmen Square massacre in Beijing, other areas of the world. But for right now, for this purpose, we want to talk about his experiences in Vietnam. Uh, He grew up (laughs) to be, shall we say, uh, the dean of the School of Journalism at the University of Illinois, uh, a professor emeritus now of journalism and also the dean of the College of Media. He's an author, um, and he won Pulitzer Prizes, or he was nominated for Pulitzer Prizes about his coverage of that war, and he joins us today. Professor Ron Yates, thanks for joining us. 
Well, thank you, Sandy. It's good to be here. Those do those uh, sound bites did take me back. That's for sure. Yeah, it's amazing to hear it in real time. And I think you know, Ron. You and I both remember Vietnam very well. Obviously, you you were there. I was uh, just uh, you know my I was living it through the news here stateside and through my friends who were serving. But there are so many people that we are talking to today who don't know anything or at least very little about Vietnam. And also, there are those who served who are still confused about what in the world happened in Vietnam. Uh, did the Americans lose? Did they? Why were they there? Uh, what, what happened? We had, uh, by the way, 58,000 Americans were killed uh, in the war there over a course of almost 10 years. 304,000 Americans were wounded, and it has affected our country in amazing ways. And so I want us to kind of kind of set the stage just for a second. Tell us, Ron, you're a journalist, and you covered it. I have my own opinions about these things, but from your perspective, what was the Vietnam War all about? Well, uh, it's, it's, uh, it was very confusing, uh, clearly. Uh, you can go back to about... You know, you go back to the early '50s when uh, uh, President Truman sent some uh, advisors to to Vietnam to help uh, with the French. The French were the uh, colonial power in Vietnam. They had been that way since the 18, uh, 19th century, or 18th century, uh, 19th century, I should say, about 1875 or so. <clears throat> the French were uh, pretty much in control of that of all of Indochina, that meant uh, today's Vietnam and then Laos and Cambodia. And uh, so he sent these advisors there. Then in 1954, more advisors were sent. And then by 1961, uh, after the French had been defeated at Dinh Binh Thu, which was a major battle, and uh, the Viet Minh, as they called at the time, defeated the French. And uh, <clears throat> 1961, President Kennedy, John F. John F. Kennedy, JFK, sent uh, a, a several hundred advisors, and their job was really to advise the South Vietnamese army, which was dealing with the North Vietnamese, uh, the communist regime in the north. After it didn't been through, the, the country was cut in half. So you had half the country up north was in Hanoi, the capital of, of, of North Vietnam was Hanoi, and that was communist. And South Vietnam, the capital was Saigon, and that was the area that was supposed to become a democracy. Ron, Ron, let me ask you before we go. The French, when you say colonializing, that means it was like their property, like their they uh, they had a lot of benefits from being yes. in Vietnam. They didn't go there to fight uh, against the communists with the, no, the no, South no. Vietnamese. Yeah, no, just French, to make that the clear. French were, uh, uh, the French were the French went there in the 19th century and first began to grow uh, pepper. Uh, pepper was a big commodity back then, black pepper. And uh, and then they grew these the pepper, and then eventually uh, they got into the rubber uh, industry because rubber became a very big big commodity. It, it started in Brazil, and then somehow they got the rubber plants from Brazil over to Asia, and then they planted them in Vietnam and other places, Indonesia and whatever. And so so rubber became a huge cash crop, and so many many French went to Vietnam to uh, set up these big rubber plantations you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of rubber plantations. And uh, <clears throat> at the same time, they essentially controlled all of that part of the world, the South, the Southeast Asian uh, area, you know, as I said, Laos, uh, Cambodia, and Vietnam. And um, so the French were there as colonial powers, just like yes. the British were in India as a colonial power, and the Dutch were in Indo- Indonesia 
and and, and we should make and I just and want to make that we were in the Philippines as kind of a semi-colonial power because we had taken over the Philippines after uh, after 1898 after the Spanish American you know, the Spanish American War. I don't want to get too deep into history, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> but we, nevertheless, yeah. so the French were there for a different reason. Well, yes. what was happening? The, the, the Vietnamese had had enough. They said, "We want this is our country. We want you out." And they 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 struggled for decades trying to get the French out. They couldn't do it. And after World War II, of course, France was uh, eviscerated because of the war, and uh, like like a lot of European countries were, and they didn't have the kind of strength, power, or whatever, or will to hang on to South Vietnam or to Vietnam. So they began to uh, essentially it all began to crumble, and the Viet Minh, the the North Vietnamese, the, Viet, the communists, were very, very strong, and they managed to defeat the French. So, and, and once we again, should go back say, to 1961. Uh, 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 Ron, we should say also, of course, just to be clear, that the Chinese were backing the North Vietnamese communists. It was a push from China. And absolutely. so that that's really what drew us into this, isn't it? Well, yeah, there was a, there was the theory that if, if one of these dominoes, meaning uh, one of these small countries in, in, in Asia, fell to communism, all would fall to communism, because they thought, okay, Vietnam falls, Laos falls, Cambodia falls, Thailand will fall, Malaysia will fall, uh, all these other countries will fall and become part of the, uh, uh, of the China, uh, under the Chinese uh, communist sphere. So there's a big fear of that. Whether or not it was accurate, I don't know, but that was the fear. And so the idea was to stop communism there before it reached us. That, yes. that was kind of the attitude that and existed Ron just, back in the fifties and sixties. And, and it was a Ron just world, you know. yes, yes. I so we and we should say that 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 world was a post World War II, uh, right after the also after the Russian Revolution, where communism was a huge specter, huge. It dominated our news and our thoughts. Uh, we were worried about there being a cold. There was a cold war, but we were worried about an all-out uh, attack from Russia and China and communist forces. So that's why it was such a big thing, and worth, yes. I think, to some people's mind, going to try to defend the South Vietnamese people against communism. And and the, and I have to say also, the South Vietnamese, the people that I met there knew, and most most of the South Vietnamese, they didn't want communism. They really didn't. They 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 preferred a a laissez-faire kind of an economy. They wanted one that was free and freewheeling. The South Vietnamese were very, you know, big on 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 capitalism, and uh, they they were very. Uh, they did not want to give that up to to the communists from the north. So it wasn't just us. The, a lot of South Vietnamese wanted the same thing. However, they had no idea what price they were going to have to pay to get that, and uh, you know the price was pretty heavy. I mean, you yes. have. A lot of people dying, and uh, at least 200,000 South Vietnamese soldiers dying, and 2 million uh, South Vietnamese civilians, and about the same number up north. So it was pretty costly, the whole war. And you could actually say it started, I mean, you can argue that the, that the war, that our involvement in the war started with when Kennedy sent those advisors to Vietnam, yeah. and they were not supposed to be doing, in, in com- they weren't supposed to be in combat, but they were. Everybody knew it. The journalists on the ground there knew it. And they reported it that way, but the government kept, you know, Washington kept denying that they were actually involved in combat, which they were. And then eventually, of course, by 1965, we sent the Marines in after the, the Gulf of Tonkin thing, and then we sent the Marines in, and suddenly it exploded. And by the height of the war, by the 1968, 69, 
about a half a million Americans were on the ground in Vietnam engaged against the North Vietnamese. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it was like guerrilla warfare. It wasn't traditional warfare. And no. uh, and it wasn't that, um, as you will tell in your story later, it wasn't that America lost any of the battles. It was that we were they were in jungles. They were fighting under the most harsh conditions. Uh, it was a very difficult war to fight. Kind of remind me of Korea a little bit, Ron. Mm -hmm. Same well, but different. Korea was still a, a rather... Um, uh, conventional war and that you had large military units facing off against one another, supported by artillery and, and also armored uh, uh, divisions and things like that. Whereas in Vietnam, uh, it, only one big battle actually took place between the North and the and North Vietnamese and the Americans, and that was in the Iron Triangle. And that was like in 1964 or so, uh, 65. And what had happened there is... Uh, the North Vietnamese discovered from that battle that they could not fight a sustained military uh, action against the incredible firepower that the United States military had. So they realized from that point on they would have to go into a guerrilla mode, and they would use this, the, the, the South Vietnamese Viet Cong as their major tool in the South to, to do these things, to attack and to, to hit and run. It was just a hit and run kind of a thing. And that was how they were going to fight this battle. And it worked. I mean, it worked for them. That, Even though, like you say, the Americans never lost any major battle there. I mean, they, they won almost every one of them, except for these small engagements, you know. And uh, I, I think I mentioned in my piece uh, that I met with the colonel once about in 1985. I went back for the 10th anniversary of the fall, and I was talking to this North Vietnamese uh, colonel. And he said, you know, you didn't lose the war here. Militarily, you lost it in America in your cities and villages because yes, well, people just got tired of it. And they yes, well, and yes, and actually, that sets us up for the next part because I want to talk to you about uh, the role of the media. You were uh, part of the Chicago Tribune team. Oh, you were the Chicago Tribune team. <laughs> and, I was and, um, <laughs> Yeah, you and your team. Uh, but you were part of the media, Ron, and you grew. Yeah, <laughs> say this tongue in cheek. You grew up to be the dean. Uh, at uh, University of <laughs> Illinois uh, School of Journalism. Uh, so I'm sure you have some very strong views about what uh, the journalists and reporting did uh, during that time to turn the tide of the war, and I certainly do. Uh, so let's talk about that when we return. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. For it seems now more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. But it is increasingly clear to this report that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. That was Walter Cronkite of CBS. He was like America's anchorman during that time, and most of us watched him every night as he counted body bags and gave us a blow-by-blow -blow description of how horrible the Americans were doing in this war. We found out later uh, that Walter Cronkite was completely anti-war. He was a leftist. He was a very pro-abortion. That's why he gave false information on coat hanger abortions. I could go on and on about that. But uh, Ron Yates is my guest. Ron knows certainly all about the Vietnam part of that. He was a foreign correspondent for the Chicago Tribune during that time, was there, and we're going to get to his dramatic story about the last 24 hours 
or in in the fall of Saigon in just a second. And by the way, he's written a story about this. It's a it's from his blog post. It's remembering the final 24 hours in the fall of Saigon. And we won't get to all of that, but uh, for those of you that like to read it, and I think that you should, I think you should read it and you should have your kids read it. Go to ronaldyatesbooks.com, ronaldyatesbooks.com. That's Y-A-T-E-S, books.com. And that'll link you to all of Ron's stuff. And we'll talk more about his stuff in a minute. But um, Ron, you were part of the media then, part of the Chicago Tribune. And you weren't here, so I don't know how what you think about the media's role in the, the into the war in Vietnam. What do you think? Well, there, it's it's very complex, very complicated. It started off. Uh, I think most of the journalists who went there in the early '60s, that's before we actually became heavily involved in Vietnam. They went there with the idea that they would be supportive. After all, you know, these were most of these journalists who went there in the early '60s were World War II. They were, they were covering. They had covered World War II. They had covered Korea. They had won Pulitzer prizes both for World War II coverage and Korean coverage. So they were very. Hey, we're gung ho here. We've got to stop these people. We've got to stop these communists from taking over this country. What happened though, <clears throat> over time, because these advisors that were there were not supposed to be engaged in combat, and everybody knew that they were, and some of the reporters reported that. That got into a that got him into a very nasty kind of a confrontational relationship with the military authorities in, in Saigon. And so what was happening, uh, Sandy, was that the reporters on the ground in Vietnam were reporting what they saw, the truth, right? They saw it. They were reporting it. But back in Washington, the reporters who are covering Washington, D.C., and covering the administration, the Kennedy administration, and, and, and ultimately, then the, the LBJ, uh, when he when after Kennedy was assassinated, um, they were getting a whole different story. They were saying, "No, no, though your guys on the ground over there are not telling the truth. It's not right." The fact is, they were telling the truth. The ones in the in Washington were getting fed the 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 uh, government line that the advisors were not there. They weren't doing any kind of uh, combat when, in fact, they really were. So that created this already this antagonistic, very confrontational relationship with the military. Then those reporters, the early ones, Homer Biggert at the New York Times and some of these other people, they they left. They went they retired. I mean they were in their fifties when they arrived. Now they didn't want to be there anymore. They didn't want to cover any more war, so they left. A whole new group of reporters came in then. And people like David Halberstam of the New York Times and, and uh, Malcolm Brown of the uh, Associated Press and, and, and Sheehan of the New York Times, all these different people came in. And they began to uh, immediately began to pick up where the others left off. And But by that time, the Americans were more heavily involved. By that time, American troops were there. More and more troops were there. And the Marines had landed in Da Nang. So what was happening, uh, Sandy, is that every day there would be a briefing in Saigon at the uh, USIS headquarters, the United States Information Service headquarters, and and they, it was called the, the it became known as the five o'clock follies because what would happen is they would get these briefings that were partially true and partially not true. So that what the reporters were trying to do is figure out what was right and what was not right, what was true, what was not true. And this continued and continued and continued. It just kind of festered. And uh, But the, the thing is, to their credit, the military did not restrict coverage. I mean, reporters in Vietnam could go anywhere, anytime, anyplace, with anybody. 
He just went out to the airport, went out to the military airports, whatever, and jumped on a helicopter and went. And they took you. You know, they didn't care. They thought, well, given the reporter's freedom, we'll make them, you know, much more uh, uh, liable to report what we want them to report, and they'll be much more supportive. And I think a lot of them were. I mean, the whole theory that the press lost the war for for us in Vietnam is just not true. It doesn't hold water. I've checked into that many, many. I've spent a lot of time looking into this. Yes, there were negative stories. But I would say most of them were not negative, and most of the stuff that was coming out of Vietnam was pretty much uh, a, a constant, a constant repetition of today more fighting, more fighting, next day more fighting, more fighting, nothing happening, no, uh, no, a uh, kind of road to victory. And then along came McNamara and said, "I see light at the end of the tunnel." Right? That was a very big uh, thing that he said. And what, where, nobody else was seeing that light because the North Vietnamese were just not going to give up. And they were fighting every which way they could. And every time we gave, went into an engagement, we might win that engagement, but you didn't gain anything. You weren't gaining territory. You weren't doing anything except bombing the North, perhaps. And I remember one – I remember I interviewed General Jap, who was the, uh, the main architect of the war against the United States. He told me if Nixon, when he was president, had continued the bombing of the North – before 1973, 1972 to 1973, when the peace treaty was signed in Paris, if he, he continued the bombing another three weeks, they were ready to capitulate. That's how close we came to, to beating them just with, by bombing the, the heck out of, uh, out of uh, the north and especially Hanoi. You know, Ron, so there just... was a lot of just a lot of misinformation and disinformation and a lot of confusion. And of course, you live, you were alive then, and I was alive then, and we know what was happening in our country then. People think the country is divided now. It is. We have tremendous political division in this country. But in the 60s, we knew it was even worse. It was really divided. I mean, there were demonstrations every day. There were people blowing up buildings. I mean, bombs going off in this country. All kinds of nasty things happening. And uh, people were opposed to the war. People were for the war. You had people going back and forth. It was just an incredible uh, uh, time. And all that spilled over into... Vietnam. And, but, you know, the, the soldiers that were there, they did their job. They did their job. And there was a lot of, there's been a lot of misinformation about our American soldiers and, and that they didn't, that they fell down on the job. They did not, you know, because I think I mentioned in my piece, during World War II, the average American soldier over a three-year period had about 40 days of intense combat. In Vietnam, during the, the 13 months that the, that the soldiers were there in their assignment in Vietnam. They had a 13-month uh, period that they were there. They were engaged in 240 days of combat. That's a big difference in one year. 240 yes. days out of a year, whereas in World War II, it was 40 days out of two or three years. Big difference. So I give them a lot of credit. Those guys were tough, and they did their job. And you know, it's just I agree. sad that, that the war ended the way it did, which was... Yes, and... Uh, I'll never it, forget that. It was, it was the most horrible thing that I'll ever experience in my life to watch us leave and the way we did, ignominiously. Yes, yes, and we're gonna, we will get to that, Ron. I, I agree with you. I, I think the thing that we also need to say, because again, we're teaching a generation that doesn't know what we're talking about here, uh, what happened with our soldiers during that time, and I agree with you that they, they were, a lot of them were my friends, they were smart guys, man. They went over there and they, they were deterred, they loved their country. And mm -hmm. they were determined to fight communism. That's what they thought they were doing, and it is what they were doing. It's just that they, it was complicated. And I do think, 
Ron, having sat, been on the, the receiving end of media at that time, uh, of course, I wasn't reading the Chicago Tribune when I was a teenager, but um, I wasn't. But uh, the news, the media, the network news is where we got most of our information. And it was a steady drip of undermining. That's I saw that myself. And I think it, it certainly, from my perspective, it uh, it ginned up uh, a a, um, a concern about the war. Well, we would have all been concerned because most of us knew someone who was serving. Uh, but mm-hmm. it, it did twist things. And I think it was the first time in my life I actually saw... Um, I, I could actually instinctually tell that we were not hearing everything on the network news. Something was being left out, uh, and we were being persuaded to think a certain thing. And I do think that Washington responded to that. And as you said, we could have won if we had uh, not been listened to the politicians in Washington. I think we could have ended this war differently. That's my opinion about it. That, no, you're as right. a civilian, Andy, you're doing absolutely it. right. I've talked to a lot of people who were in major positions of authority, uh, who were officers and, and higher, you know, generals and colonels and people like that. If they had been left to their own devices, if they had been left alone by Washington, they would have won the war. There's no doubt. And, and, and they said, we would have won it. We, we, we had everything under control. We could have done it. But it became a political thing. It became a political war. And you don't win wars uh, in Washington with politicians telling generals in other parts of the world what they're supposed to do and what they can't do, what they can do, what the, what the order of battle is, what what the uh, you know what you're supposed to be doing in, in terms of uh, uh, what you can and cannot do. No, you can't shoot at anybody unless they shoot at you first. Remember, that was during the Obama administration. Oh, yes, I do. Of course Remember? I do. You cannot shoot anybody unless they yeah. shoot at you first. Yeah. Are you crazy? You don't yeah. tell soldiers that. Yeah. Their lives are on the line. And they're, being, they're under constant threat, not only from people shooting at them, but from IEDs and all these other things. You're not gonna, you can't tell people to do that, but that's what was happening. And in Vietnam, it didn't happen that way, but the, the politicians in Washington were so strong in terms of some of them were so against the war that they uh, had enough power that they were able to influence what was happening on the ground in Vietnam. And that caused tremendous confusion. Yes. Lots of confusion, I, and it, it was exactly what the, the North Vietnamese wanted. They yes. loved what was happening in our country. They loved yep. to see the division. And you know what, Sandy? We're seeing it again today. Who yeah. are our enemies? China. People like that. Yes. They love to see this division in our country. It makes us mm-hmm. weak, and it makes us and uh, makes us a country that they feel they can control, and they are yes. doing it. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's right back to where we started from. It's almost like we've gone back into time, and and. <laughs> And now we are fighting another enemy that's trying to divide us and keep us uh, on our knees. And they're doing it. They're doing a good job of it. (laughs) You know, and Ron, I was just thinking, too, another similarity, and I'll just say this quickly. We had a whole series of traitors uh, who made the the news who would go to Vietnam and collude with the enemy publicly to do a propaganda battle against the American people, Jane Fonda, uh, Ramsey Clark. Uh, Ramsey Clark, who was a part of the, I forgot which administration, but he was like the former Secretary of State or something to that effect. And then John mm-hmm. Kerry, the John Kerry, the famous John Kerry. Yes. So, yeah. And then our soldiers, the other thing that I just want to say by way of teaching here, our soldiers were so brutalized when they were captured. Horrendous tortures and stories that came out of uh, Vietnam Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't. Uh, you you had been a soldier, so you had trained. Uh, Ron, let's talk about what you were doing there and how this worked. You are living in a hotel in Saigon, 
and mm-hmm. you are by yourself. You are you have other correspondents, but you're the only person there again representing the Chicago Trib, right? Correct. Okay, well, so actually, what... uh, at, toward the end, uh, uh, Phil Caputo came in from the Middle East, uh, and he came in to because it was getting really intense, and there were so many things happening around us, and the North Vietnamese were coming down to down uh, to the south so fast that uh, they uh, I talked with the office, and they said. Uh, we thought we might send Phil in. Do you want him to come in? I said, sure, send him in. You know, I could use the help. So Phil, Phil Caputo came in for the last couple of, uh, about the last three or four weeks, three weeks of it. And Phil then went on to write a, a book, which uh, the name of the book was A Rumor of War. It became a, a movie. And uh, then Phil left the Tribune and just spent the rest of his life uh, writing novels. <laughs> but uh, uh, Phil came in and, and he worked with me. All right, so uh, then as you're working, just logistically, you're pretty much, though, by yourself, and you're covering the story, you're writing about it, and you're taking the pictures. I know that most of you guys had photographers and then writers, but you were doing both things. And did you train for combat? Did you, uh, did you have special plans for what you would do if you got in a very bad situation, or did you just use your military training to prepare you to go out with guys and... And take yeah. the danger well, on. I mean, it was uh, my military background was very helpful to me because I knew how to read uh, a battle situation, and I, I knew how to use weapons because I've been trained, and I was trained in using an M14 and M16. I qualified with all those weapons, and uh, I could use an M60 machine gun. I, I could, if I had to, I could pick up a weapon and defend myself. And I also knew uh, how uh, rifle squads operated, how. You know, platoons operated, how different organizations within the military structure operated. And uh, I, I was a sergeant. Uh, I was a, uh, an E-6 at the time when I was in the military. And uh, so, yeah, I knew quite a bit. I knew all the weapons. I knew everything that there was to know about that, so I could actually go up. But my background was in, in the Army Security Agency, and I had a top-secret crypto security clearance which meant that I, I, I knew everybody at all the embassies around in Southeast Asia, certainly in Saigon, I knew who all the, the people in the CIA were. And they were my best sources. And I met with them on occasion, and we talked, and they knew they could trust me because they knew I had a, had a, I had a TS&C clearance, which was the, the highest clearance you can get. So they, feel, they felt they could trust me, and they did. I never burned anybody, and I, they got, I got lots of good information from what was happening out there. So logistically, be, and quickly, logistically, before we take this break, and then we're going to go to back to the last 24 hours there, you, you were sending, you had to like walk your stuff over to some sort of a sending facility and send it through the wire, your pictures, your stories, and a lot of Vietnamese on the street helped you do that. Now, now I don't have time for you to respond because there's the music. Uh, but but it, was a, it was not like it is now. They weren't, no, you didn't send it over the all. internet. Not yeah. Yeah, so those were the, the logistical. You're staying in a hotel in Saigon, and we come up then uh, to after a nearly 10-year war, the end comes suddenly. And that's what we're going to be talking about next, the fall of Saigon. Sandy Rios in the morning. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Saigon, April the 30th, 8 o'clock. The last American helicopter on the roof of the American embassy prepares to lift off the last of the evacuees fleeing before the advancing communist armies. Back in the city, normal patterns of behavior broke down. In a climate of every man for himself, 
American homes, offices and stores were looted of everything. The discarded equipment even ran to tanks, some damaged, but some also abandoned intact by their crews as they fled before the communists. And then, shortly after midday, came the climax of 30 years of fighting. The first North Vietnamese troops entered the city, packed into trucks that flew the red and blue flag of the Communist Provisional Revolutionary Government, the PRG. Those who failed on that last day to get a place on the helicopters and who had reason to fear the communist takeover made for the only route that still offered a chance of escape, the Saigon River. Hundreds scrambled in panic onto any boats they could reach, not caring how they got aboard or what they left behind. That's a story by the China Morning Post, and of course that's just a partial telling of that dramatic day. I don't know... Most of you were not alive uh, on that day in 1974, I think it was, 73, when Saigon fell. But Ron Yates was there. Ron was the foreign correspondent for the Chicago Tribune. And by the way, before I let him uh, talk about his experiences on that day, let me remind you that Ron is an author and uh, the former dean of uh, media at the University of Illinois School of Journalism, former professor there of journalism, and he's written so many incredible things. He has a blog in which he has remembered this day, these two days, remembering the final 24, two days, one day, remembering the final 24 hours in the fall of Saigon is the one we're featuring today. And you can see all of these things by going to ronaldyatesbooks.com and you can track where his blog is and find everything he's written. He's writing a book about Tokyo Rose. He's, uh, he's got a best-selling book, a series of, of um, uh, novels, uh, Billy help me, Billy Battles, uh, that you'll want to find out too. He's a great writer. So Ron Yates, you were there in that hotel when this all began. Can you kind of walk us through it in the 15-minute version? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, uh, it was April 29th, about 4 o'clock in the morning, and uh, uh, suddenly uh, I just you can, there was a lot of firing and uh, rocket attacks, 122-millimeter rockets were flying into the city, and uh, hitting indiscriminately in different different areas of the city, so there was a lot of explosion. I, the hotel I was in, the Continental Palace, was it's an old hotel. It's been there since uh, 1870 something. So uh, it, it shuddered and shaked, and I jumped out of bed, and uh, you know, all the gecko lizards on the ceiling were running for cover, and <laughs> and I was looking out the window trying to figure out what was going on, and it became pretty clear very quickly that uh, this was. Not normal that uh, this was going. This was something that was going to be happening today. So we got dressed, went, went downstairs. We got into the uh, down down below into the uh, main area of the hotel, and then uh, we began listening. And we had a radio attuned to the embassy frequency, and they were telling us that uh, op- Operation uh, Frequent Wind, which was the code name for the evacuation, was in effect which meant we were going to be evac- the evacuation was going to start that, that day. And that's what it did. And we were told to go to our rec- these different places where we'd be met by buses, and the buses would take us out to Tonsonit and all that. Hey, Ron, Ron, I'm going to stop you just for a second, because this, I want you to tell this great story. You told what the code was that you were listening for. It had two parts to it. And oh, yeah. the first part was a message, and the second was a song. Yeah, there, the, tell the, us the, that. the code was uh, they would play... Yeah, the temperatures uh, 104 and rising, and then they would play Bing Crosby singing "White Christmas," and that was the code that the that frequent wind was going to start. 
And I remember a lot. <laughs> uh, I remember one time I, I was that we had heard that about two weeks beforehand. That was the code that was out there. And I remember a, a Japanese uh, reporter that I knew came up to me and says, "How does how does White Christmas go? How do you how how does it sound?" <laughs> and he says, "Can you hum it?" <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, "Don't worry, Bing Crosby will be singing it." But uh, anyway, that that was the code, and uh, uh, so it started. And uh, we had our evacuation points. We went to. We got to those points, and suddenly there was nothing there. And uh, instead, what we found were South Vietnamese had set up machine guns, and uh, there was no way that a, a helicopter or any kind of a vehicle was going to come to those areas in front of these machine guns. In other words, the South Vietnamese were not really happy to see us leaving, right? right. So, um, and then thinking about going to Thompson, it, the, the airport was under attack. That's the airport out, outside of, uh, about six miles outside of Saigon. And uh, that was under attack. So we watched, I watched the helicopter get shot down. Not an mm. American helicopter, but a South Vietnamese helicopter. Then I watched a, a C-19 uh, uh cargo plane gets shot down. And I thought, well, that's the last place I want to go. So we went to the embassy. But around the embassy were thousands and thousands and thousands of hysterical Vietnamese trying to get into the embassy compound over the walls around the embassy. Hey, Ron, and, let me let me interject. They Because they had helped the Americans in this effort. Many were South Vietnamese soldiers or people that worked in the embassy or were sympathetic and wanted to be free, and they knew that the communists, or they thought the communists would slaughter them. And they were well, eager. Exactly. They, wanted to, they were terrified. These are people, most of them had worked. They had papers. They were holding their papers and waving them at the Marines, yeah. saying, well, I worked at this place, I did this, and I did mm-hmm. that. And they, they couldn't, they some of them got in, but most of them didn't. And I, there was no way that I was going to crawl over about 10 feet of people's bodies trying <laughs> over their backs to try to get into that embassy. There's no way I could do that. I wasn't going to do it. I was so disgusted by this. I, 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 these people were terrified, and they had good reason to be, because we know what happened afterwards. Not that a lot of them were, were executed. Some of them were. But they went into re-education camps, essentially concentration camps. And that's where they and they resided there for years. I mean, I went back in 1985, Sandy, and they were still in these camps. Mm-hmm. And I and they took us to one camp that they had set up as kind of like a model. And even then, we saw how disgusting uh, things were in those in these camps. Re-education camps, my foot. These were labor camps, and they, these people were dying in these places. And we, you know, were responsible for that because we didn't get these people out. We should have been doing this. We should have started this whole process back in, in January or February and began moving these people out of the country where they would be safe, but we didn't do it. And so what, what happened you, was a few thousand got out on the, on the last day, but uh, I would say two or 300,000 Vietnamese didn't, and they're the ones that wound up in these camps, and a lot of them didn't survive. Ron, you say you describe in your piece, and we don't need to get sidetracked. I will just say that the U.S. Ambassador Graham Martin was kind of in denial. He kept thinking that some deal would be made, some agreement would be reached, and he didn't mm-hmm. really think it would come to this, and he, that, maybe that's why the preparations were not made. That's part of it, yeah. Uh, they were hoping that uh, somehow Congress would uh, uh, appropriate money, pass an appropriations bill for money to help uh, supply and support the South Vietnamese military, but under the terms of that 1973 agreement, the peace agreement, which we were abiding by, and the North wasn't, uh, which is why they were attacking, <laughs> uh, 
because we, they knew we weren't going to do anything. Uh, th- there was no way that we could actually provide money for military assistance. That had been uh, canceled by the, by the peace agreement, so we weren't going to do it. And all these, of course, a lot of people in the Congress who were against the war were pushing that, and they said, we're not going to appropriate any money to help the South Vietnamese. We have to let nature take its course, yes. essentially. All and right, so you're there. You're there watching nature take its course. You're watching all of these people that you respected and who had been our friends and our allies, uh, begging and trying to get, uh, trying to climb up the the uh, fences and having even the Marines having to knock them back, which I'm sure killed them. It has had to have been hard for them, Ron, because only so many people could get out. And because uh, they believed in what we were trying to do, there's no a lot. They they really believed that we were going to help them defeat or at least maintain the status quo so that the South would not fall to the North and become a communist country. And uh, that was our promise to them. We said it over and over again, you know. Yeah. And uh, in, the, in, in the end, we didn't keep our promise. And in the end, we left. And mm-hmm. it, it, was a, I, I, it was the most... I felt so... Uh, I felt so terrible. I, it was the most disgraceful thing I, I'll ever experience in my life. It was bad enough that it was frightening and that we weren't sure we were going to get out and uh, we, it was very very uh, dicey you know but when we did finally get on the helicopter the CH-53 Sea Stallion Marine helicopter taking us out to the 7th Fleet you know you breathe a sigh of relief but you're thinking to yourself this is absolutely disgusting what we've done and uh, it's just all the sacrifices the 58,000 dead Americans the hundreds of thousands of dead Vietnamese north and south, and and the 300,000 Americans who were wounded and came back with all kinds of, not only physical, but psychological wounds, all for nothing, for nothing. And and we left them in the lurch. And it's just disgusting. That's the politics that really disgusts me, you know, and it still does today. Oh, well, me too. It, it It was a travesty. Uh, and it was so unjust. It really was, Ron. And uh, but we we could. It didn't have to be that way. And that's the point. Uh, the politicians. No, I, you know. Finally, after I, 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 I think I took you to the embassy, and I, I was not going to crawl over those people to get on the wall to get over to the embassy wall. I wasn't going to do it. So we went back to a place. There was a place called. It was a New York, uh, University of Maryland. It was a like a uh, a small uh, satellite version of the University of Maryland, and that was one of the pickup points. So uh, several of us walked over there. We were carrying bags and our you know, backpacks and stuff. And we walked over there, and all of a sudden, a, a Marine bus shows up, a, a U.S. Marine uh, military bus. And they opened the doors, and we all ran into the bus, and, and we said, where are you going? <laughs> he said, where do you want to go? I said, let's get off to Tansanut. That's the only place we're going to get out of here. So off we went. And... Uh, we got out to, to the airport there, and uh, it was kind of dicey because they weren't going to let us through the gate, the South Vietnamese. They, were, they, they shot in the air over our bus, and we all dived, dove to the floor. And then the bus driver says, we're just going to crash at the gate and hope we make it. And so he backed the bus up, and he, he, he gunned it, and off we went, tearing toward the gate. But the Vietnamese at the last minute pulled back, opened the gates, and we went off right on through and went to the what they call the MACD, that's uh, Military Assistance Command Vietnam, Headquarters building, a huge, huge building. They call it the Pentagon East, is what they call it. It was enormous. And we got there, and we went inside, and we sat down inside on the, in the uh, hallways and waited and waited and waited. And eventually, uh, a helicopter, a Marine helicopter, arrived and, and 
we were able to get on that and get get out. And it was uh, that was how we essentially got out of the place. With in between that, it was like eight hours of just wandering around Saigon, trying to figure out where to get 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 out of the city and what was going to happen and who would you who who was going to take us out. We had no idea. It was very very. Uh, I'm surprised there weren't more people. Uh, I mean, nobody was actually killed during the evacuation, as far as I know. But well, I, I'm, that's not true. There were some Marines who were killed out of Tonsonit when the North Vietnamese attacked the air base out there. They were in the line of fire and they were killed. Wow, I think Ron, two of them. Ron, that we shouldn't just have, have happened, but it did. No, no. Well, we we are we are fast out of time. So this is what I want to ask. Let's talk about uh, in four minutes here. Vietnam was reunited in the sense that it became a communist country. It remains a communist country. Uh-huh. Uh, the communist rule, and I'm sure you've been to the museum there, I have too, where Jane Fonda is still a hero to them, as is Ramsey Clark. All the traitors are still heroes. We normalized uh-huh. relations with them in 19, uh, 1994, 95, under uh-huh. Bill Clinton. And uh-huh. um, so, um, in, in retrospect, uh, what can you say about the country of Vietnam? Um, you've been back. How was that for you? It was uh, first. The first time I went back was '85. That was the 10th anniversary of the fall of Saigon. So at that point, still things were kind of uh, they were under tight control. When we were back in 1995, and uh, uh, actually I went back with your friend and mine and my colleague at the Tribune, Val Mazinga, the great photographer. Yes. Uh, we went back together in 1995, and all of a sudden. Saigon was changing. I mean, it didn't, I didn't recognize it. tall buildings, hotels, really, you know, like five-star hotels were yes. going up. And and the, the memory of the war among a lot of the people that I met, especially young people, was almost nil. Yes, I mean, and they with, had no concept. These yeah. were young people in their 20s who weren't even alive when, well, when Saigon And, and that's and, exactly why we're having this conversation, why we had it today. And if people want to know more about it, it's Remembering the Final 24 Hours in the Fall of Saigon by Ron Yates. You can go to ronyatesbooks.com to find out more, because there is so much more. We should do a part two. Uh, maybe yes. we will. This, this is Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. <laughs>